Well, so we're really excited to have Christo Chia, um, who's professor of psychology. Um, would you like to say a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am a professor of psychology, um, so in the Department of Psychology at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And um, just broadly speaking, my area of uh, um, research interest focuses on the role of culture and context in um, the development of children and adolescents and, and families. Um, and so within the U.S., I focus on um, uh, immigrant, racial, ethnic, and religious minority populations. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also do a lot of cross-cultural work as well. So looking at minority groups in different countries, but also um, um, when they are the majority. So for instance, families in China and how that... Um, how their development might compare to, for instance, Chinese families within the U.S., to be able to tease out a little bit better some of the, the cultural and contextual and also shared developmental processes among all these families. And we came across your work because Liz forwarded me the announcement about this fantastic NSF grant that you got. And uh, Liz was like, we have to try to talk to her because she's just doing this fantastic work. Um, yeah, so we're really excited to, to hear about this project. And I'm speaking also as someone who, so as a Chinese diasporic person in the United Kingdom, one of the, the high profile cases of anti-Chinese violence um, was against one of the students at my university at UCL, this one young man who was beaten so badly, he's going to have to have facial reconstructive surgery. And then just on a much smaller scale, just a couple of weeks ago, I was walking along and I heard someone cough really loudly next to me, but I was very confused because I didn't see anyone there. But then I realized a truck went by and someone had leaned out to purposely cough on me. And mm -hmm. I just had, I was just a very disorienting moment of like, wait, what the, that wasn't an accident. Oh no. <laughs> so yeah, I'd love yeah. to hear about your experiences drawing you to the project and how you're putting this study together. Sure. And so um, there was, you know, a personal motivation to this. So um, I identify as Chinese, but I actually grew up in, I was born in Malaysia and my family migrated to Canada. I know you have a Canadian connection as well. <laughs> um, so, yeah, exactly. Yay. So my family migrated to Toronto when I was 14. And so, yeah. Um, and then I, I came to the U.S. for, for graduate school and um, I did a, after my postdoc, I did a stint back in um, Canada and then back to, you know, Maryland. Um, and I've been here since 2014. And so, you know, sort of living in these various different cultural contexts um, um, and even in, in Asia as a, a racial minority within Malaysia has, you know, given me a lot of different aspects of, you know, sort of identity and thinking about identities and um, identities in different contexts has, has really been um, a personal um, journey. And you know, I'm fortunate enough to be able to bring that into my research as well. And so sometimes, you know, that's great because, you know, I have some personal insights and I'm, you know, sort of personally motivated. Um, but sometimes it's difficult as well to, to um, sort of, you know, keep the lines separate, right? Like as, you know, we were talking about before, um, you know, needing to 
maybe put some boundaries in terms in terms of okay you need to stop working now mm -hmm. um, yeah. when again it's so just you know gut-wrenchingly real and painful for you and you know you're reading about or seeing and, and talking to people who are having these experiences and so the personal motivation piece of this project was really um, because we uh, in our lab have been working with Chinese and um, Korean American families for you know over 10 years and 15 years and we were starting to see that some some families and also through you know my, my social networks that uh, who were experiencing um, you know distress and you know one parent in one of the the chat groups that I was in said that you know in his child's school um, some children and even teachers were uh, referring to COVID-19 as um, the China virus and yeah. he was yeah. you know just so distressed and you know, wanting to know what to do about it and sort of sharing it with parents. And then I was starting to also see some some people um, talking about it on, um, you know, on the internet, um, some op-eds and some news articles referring also back to SARS. Um, but it was really, you know, sort of at the beginning. And so I um, actually approached the, the program director at the National Science Foundation, and ask them about they have this rapid response mechanism yes. um, and really you know sort of I, I did a pitch you know wrote a, a summary a proposal and you know fortunately they were interested in it and this was before they actually released um, an official letter to colleagues to call for NSF projects focusing on COVID-19 and um, so we were fortunate enough to be able to start you know this project early on um, and that was also interesting because we started collecting some data before um, President Trump started to officially, you know, use these terms. Mm -hmm. And something that was really poignant to me um, was that, you know, some families have filled out our surveys. And then after, you know, that those events um, and his, you know, sort of continued defense of using you know, using these terms, even as people mm -hmm. pointed out to him, the dangers of doing so. Some families actually contacted me personally. Um, and again, like, you know, these families are supposed to be anonymous, right? Like it's an anonymous or confidential at least. Um, um, and they contacted me and said, you know, I wish that I had completed these surveys after because that changed their sense of mm. um, felt safety um, in this country. And they also, you know, shared with me some conversations that, you know, families were having on, you know, their WeChat groups, for instance, where uh, before that, a lot of the, the conversation was focused on, of course, like, you know, um, more physical safety, you know, what, how they should be preparing. A lot of it was advised from their, you know, relatives in China, you know, for, for the, the Chinese um, American participants um, and, and individuals, sorry, on these um, chat groups. But then that after this happened um, with the, the, the president's speech um, and the pictures leaking, you know, showing how he had crossed out yes. COVID-19 and so written in. Right. Um, I don't know if you've seen these images, but they are just like shocking because it's then an active, right? Mm -hmm. um, he says Very in retaliation true. to the Chinese government, but it, you know, actually the, the impact is not his retaliation doesn't have impact necessarily on the Chinese government, but it has absolute real life impact on the families in his country. Mm -hmm. Right. So. And it's another example of um, him disregarding scientific expertise 
um, and, you know, expert community expertise. And so um, I'm looking at this tweet right now, um, which is now under the White House, and it's from March 18th, and it says, Spanish flu, West Nile virus, Zika, Ebola, all named for places. Um, because the media's fake outrage, even CNN called it the Chinese coronavirus. And so it's just interesting to me because it is true that in the past we have, um, it has been a scientific, you know, kind of people have referred to viruses based on the place of their origin. However, that, um, that terminology has changed because of the recognized discrimination that, that arises from that. And so virologists um, globally are starting to change how they name viruses and what they call outbreaks. And so, you know, it's not just a political thing that he's doing, but he's also disregarding what the standard, you know, nomenclature is among the experts in the community, which is, you know, I think I like mentioning this point because I feel like scientists should be more outraged about this, or this should be a point of not just political, but like, hey, you are saying things that are not correct, that are not acceptable um, as a community, you know, as, mm -hmm. as scientific conferences, scientific journals and, and organizations should actually also be saying, this is not what we do. And also even and, historically, like the Spanish flu is what everyone's comparing it to, but from what I've been seeing historically, it they're not actually sure it originated in Spain. Um, and so it's also perhaps an early, yeah, example of this like false linking of geographical region. And apparently it had to do with the fact that people really presented that Spain was neutral during the war. And so it also was very convenient to scapegoat them for this illness. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The, the World Health Organization specifically advised against linking geographic locations or people to disease names um, and also issued new naming guidelines to try to minimize unnecessary negative impact uh, of these names. Um, and as you said, you know, for the president, the, the leader of um, you know, the United States, you know, <laughs> which he argues is the greatest country in the world, right? <laughs> um, you know, to actively, as you said, to and and it's int to me it was interesting because his argument had to, you know, so he first started off by saying, "Well, I'm trying to be accurate, right? Because it's originated mm. in Wuhan, in China, but if you're trying to be accurate, my, you know." Um, then you should refer to it by the official scientific name, yeah. um, you know, which was right given by actual experts. Yeah. And so it, it'll be interesting to see um, your, you know, full analysis of this because you were actually able to capture information pre this tweet and then also afterwards and really capture the effect of, of, of what um, has happened to people globally. Right. You know, 220 characters, 140, 220 characters. Yeah, I so um, yesterday there was actually a study that was released um, by um, a group that actually examined Twitter data. And so mm -hmm. we're going to be also, we're collecting Twitter data right now, but they um, examined tw Twitter data and 4chan data um, looking at um, xenophobia during, from October um, until I think they, they finished um, their data collection in March and they were able to show spikes um, mm. at exactly sort of these periods um, of, in, in time. And so I think that 
in doing this research because it's so I mean it's so dynamic right like I mean you know people study obviously racial discrimination on an ongoing basis it's a it's a problem it's a historical daily problem for many segments of our population it's nothing new and then um, you know you have these events that really refuel um, a lot of these historical racial tropes and you know about particular groups um but it's it's you know it's this group this time it's another group this time and i i think like really that for me the take-home message is that um again like you know we're, we're focusing on, and right now we're talking about a particular group but the, you know really because it's institutional and because it's at the societal level um it's not going to go away and you know we need a better way to sort of come together and address it address this at a, um, a larger level and you know as we saw um now there's some um there's some evidence also uh, again using i think um these social media data that has linked uh, the increase in discrimination um against asian americans to um anti-semitism statements about anti-semitism mm -hmm. so there, there are theories out there now that um somehow <laughs> it's a it isn't also a conspiracy you know these conspiracy theories but like to me you know so we for for most of us you know we can discredit these different conspiracy theories because they're wild but they reveal right like this under um root so these the systems are you know root systems that are so interconnected and they they um, I think, you know, sort of ignoring that piece of it and just dealing with these individual issues as they come up at a particular point in time, obviously is helpful because, you know, you, um, you need to respond to uh, the particular crisis at hand, but not forgetting that, again, like these roots are connected and unless we address the broader issue, they'll just keep popping up. Mm -hmm. And the anti-Semitism one is fascinating because since you're talking that, about doing comparative analyses, one of the best books I feel like I've read in the past couple of years on, uh, that does comparative racial analysis is Ico Day's Ailing Capital, which she's talking about Asian settler colonialism. But in her introduction, she talks about how, how the tropes of anti-Semitism were displaced onto Asians in North America, which I thought was very fascinating, like the sort of scapegoating of capitalism and the sort of fear of abstracted labor um, under the modern modern conditions um, and how, mm -hmm. yeah, Asians were sort of configured to to enter and take up anti-Semitic, like were had anti-Semitic discourses imposed on them. And so it's so interesting, as you're saying now, like we're just seeing this another iteration of these much older discourses coming and of course the anti-semitism goes back to the medieval period as well so it really to only look at this moment really does sort of does a disservice to the complexity of of this history right yeah exactly yeah i i had no idea about any of this and, and a part of this is because i'm you know a bread and butter you know engineer and physicist so you know i always get a lot from these conversations one of the things that I think about are my colleagues and in, in the fact that in the U.S. Um, there are a significant amount of international students, often from Asian countries, who I teach, who I work with. And so I hear and I see their stories daily. Um, mm -hmm. And they make up a large percentage of the students um, that make up all you know, American universities, actually. 
So there's this other, you know, in atmosphere where, um, and we did an episode about this a couple of years ago with Dr. Michelle Tong talking about international students as really the silent majority, like the real silent majority in the U.S. Um, and how much they contribute to this force. And so um, through that, I've actually started to think about my students through a different lens or trying to talk to them. Um, and I found this is kind of like where it makes my heart kind of hurt because I know that some of them are not used to, they just came to a new country, they're trying to understand some of the, the politics and dynamics that I know because I grew up here, but they're like, what's happening? Or when they, when they hear something, they don't automatically recognize that that might be discrimination or something that's racially based or, or gender based or even like, um, you know, domestic versus international kind of things happening to them or they recognize it and say, I'm only going to be here for five years. It's okay, but it's not okay. Or you're afraid to go to bars now. You're afraid to go shopping. You're afraid to to even speak out to your um, fellow colleagues or advisors because you have gotten this, you know, these things happening to them. And, and I think that's really, it's really challenging. And I wish that people could see like, the harm that it's doing to the people who make up a significant workforce of the science, American science as we know it. Yeah, I, I agree. I work with a, a lot of international students and it's always an interesting process, um, you know, to sort socialize them, right? And, mm -hmm. and so it's disheartening to socialize them to the, the racial dynamics um, that is the United States. And, um, you know, sometimes like I, I always, I feel bad for them as I, you know, because I can see them shrinking as mm -hmm. I try to explain them. But at the same time, you know, they, they need to have this knowledge if they're going to live here for a particular period of time, because, um, it, you know, ignorance may be bliss on a short term basis. But then when it does happen and inevitably they will encounter something, it you know, sort of damage to that can do without the sort of prior understanding and framework to in in order to be able to process some of these um again can be more damaging without that knowledge and i see that um see this a, a lot with asian americans as mm -hmm. well as particular first generation families where you know they they, they come as immigrants and um they're focused on just, you know, working hard, you know, this ideology of, you know, working hard, keeping your head down, not making trouble. And it's so complex because on, on the one hand, you know, it's a coping mechanism. And so even if they see or experience any um, events of discrimination, they might mm -hmm. get discounted. Or as you yeah. said, you know, let's, you know, I, I'm not going to let this, you know, kind of derail me or distract me. Um, and we don't want to make trouble on the other hand. And so again, like that, sh that approach me on a short term basis, be protective. Right. And um, mm -hmm. there's all the psychological theory about, you know, at one aspect of that being one aspect of, of coping. But on the other hand, it's, you know, it can be detrimental at two levels. One is on the personal level, right? So if you're not dealing with these emotions and that, longer term stress and, and dysregulation that in, and the impact of that um, can lead to, you know, sort of internalizing problems later on. Um, and on the other hand, it contributes to the narrative of the model minority, yes. which is yeah. so dangerous in and of itself mm -hmm. um, and brings about, you know, all these like larger scale issues. 
And so when we work with, you know, families, um, and many of them are first generation families, um, and now in this study, we're trying to assess, you know, the parents' perception of discrimination that they've experienced themselves in mm. multiple levels, you know, seeing it in social media or, you know, personally experiencing it, and then having them report on their children's experiences. And for the older children, we're also getting them to report on their own experiences of discrimination. And we're also trying to assess what parents are doing about this. So uh, racial socialization practices. Um, so, you know, parents not just teaching their children about their cultural heritage, and but also, mm-hmm. you know, preparation for, for bias. And, and there's a lot of work, um, you know, on this that's that's been ongoing, but looking at it in this moment um, of time and how parents are reacting to it. And, and you know, so many of these parents may not have sort of noticed or paid attention to or have maybe perhaps downplayed some of these experiences previously, but a lot of them are finding themselves in a situation that is really unavoidable now. And what about language? So I think about um, how when I talk with students, they don't always have the language to understand what was happening to them, or they have been conditioned not to use that language. And so I'm also thinking here, um, anti-Blackness, where they think, I'm not going to complain because I have been told or I have internalized that black people are the ones who complain. Um, but if I don't say anything and I work hard, I'm going to do well. And they never really connect those ideas, but they'll tell me things that happened to them. And, and I'll say, that sounds not okay. And they're like, Oh really? I didn't know that. I'm like, yeah, that's not okay. And they're like, but I thought I was just supposed to put up with it. But so they don't really have the language to understand what's happening to them. Um, and another thing I'll mention is that I, I've, um, Zion and I, we were grad students at Cornell. Um, and, you know, I, I was also a student at Penn. So I was in these Ivy League institutions. And one thing I would find would, would be um, some Asian students who, and I attribute this to not having language, but they would kind of assume that like, well, everything was fine for me. I never had any problems. I, I've heard that some people have had problems, but I don't have any problems. And, you know, after about 30 minutes of talking with them a little bit more about their experiences or, you know, does that white guy in your classroom really like you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or is this a fetish? You're like, wait a minute, actually. And I'm like, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did someone call you some words this one time? Um, does everyone want your homework but never want you to leave the project? <laughs> um, <laughs> do you keep wondering why this thing kept happening to you? And so I'm kind of curious what that is like trying to get people to have the language to go, like, that's what's happening to me, and it's not just a fluke. Right. Yeah. What you're saying is exactly um what actually I personally experienced as well. So I, I said that I, I um, migrated from Malaysia to Canada. Um, and so I had to learn a lot of these and it sort of really changed my schema and interpretation and recognizing a uh, recognition of, you know, microaggressions and when they happen. Mm-hmm. And, and and so in, in a way I'm able to, you know, sort of help some of my international students or, or students who've, you know, come more recently to go through this process and, you know, exactly as you're saying. And, you know, on the one hand, like I, I feel bad because, you know, I can, again, I, I can just see them, right? Like this realization yeah. comes with, so with this knowledge, you know, it comes with. It's like Spider-Man all over again. Right. <laughs> exactly. normal. <laughs> but we're seeing it, you know, with, with the, the, the research and with the families that I work with, right, trying to go through this process with them and you know helping them understand 
um, you know, it's really a fine balance, right? So helping them understand why it's so necessary and, you know, and, and really like sort of um, Blacks and Latinx parents are mm-hmm. much more, you know, sort of ahead um, of the curve with this with this knowledge that you need to do this preparation work, right? But how do you do it in a way, again, that doesn't just completely crush your child? Mm-hmm. Right? So all parents want to protect their children. And so figuring out how to protect them in a way that, is that right balance and it depends on the individual child, you know, their, their ability mm-hmm. to sort of understand and comprehend, um, but not underestimating children's ability to have picked out, you know, and, and these things and, and notice these things around them um, is also, yeah, really, it's, it's really challenging. It's really challenging. And I, I want to speak to what you brought up as, as well with regard to um, some of, uh, you know, these students or, or um, colleagues of yours, you know, initially not recognizing um, various forms of either microaggression or maybe not so micro forms <laughs> of racial yeah. aggression. Yeah. And I think that that's also been really a detriment to um, race relationships where, you know, and it's been used to, to put racial groups against racial minority groups against each other mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. yeah. and i just feel as a group you know asian americans have not been good allies to yeah. their <laughs> yeah um you and Zion are going to be really good friends yeah it pains me so it, it really pains me so because, you know, I want to shout out, like, can't you see you're being used as pawns in this and, you know, to my age American peers. And, and at, this, at the same time, just feeling so, yeah, so, so much hurt for, you know, my my Blacks and, Black and Latinx colleagues and, and friends. And, um, yeah. And how do you, yeah, and how do you do that, right? How do you? How do you go about educating and having these conversations um, in, in a way that can bring you know people together in a in a way that needs to happen for things to change again at, at a larger level? And I guess since you're because you're looking at fam, families, Chinese American families, do you feel like there's a way that your life is becoming the data? Like, and mm. you feel like that helps how you guide your studies, or like, yeah, what? What is the interplay for you of your research and you as a researcher? Yeah, that's that's been interesting because on the one hand, it gave me some insight to want to, I guess, like study document this early on um, and seeing and sort of knowing where this would you know this would be going um you know sort of motivate me and surely inform some of the questions um, and working with my team a lot of them um who are you know bi multicultural um, were able to sort of develop also we had to develop some new questions that really were triggered you know to capture psychological behavioral responses to capture this particular you know pandemic and how parents might be responding and children might be responding to it you know differently from um any other sort of you know um stressor or uh, racial stressor in in their daily lives and so that was helpful um to be able to do that but you know as you say there's also um a psychological emotional cost right to be personally linked to this and also from a sci- as a scientist i have to make sure that i'm not um 
imposing right too much of my personal experiences and fears and concerns in on you know onto the data and it's this you know i hate to bring up the word balance but i think that that is one of the key words during this period <laughs> for all of us, right? Balancing yeah. everything, but but really, right? How can I use this, you know, these personal experiences and insight um, for good, right? In a way that again can shed some light that can um, make the, the data more meaningful and more accurate, and at the same time not overpower what the data is saying really with my own personal interpretations, right? And so we will have surveys. And so some of the surveys will, you know, um, the, the surveys, uh, bes- you know, will be informed by questions that we thought were important, but we're also doing um, qualitative interviews with uh, mm-hmm. these a subset of these families. And in there, again, you know, we have a semi-structured interview um, design where we will be starting off with some, you know, broad questions. We have some, you know, sub themes that we wanted to explore, but really allowing um, families themselves to um, share their own lived experiences. And from there, we're hoping to be able to, you know, generate knowledge and insight and understanding from the bottom up, uh, from an emic perspective that will um, hopefully break down also, you know, and, and listening to the data and listening to what these families are telling us um, will help us rebalance that and, and make sure that we are speaking, you know, to the data from the data as much as, as possible. And then we'll have also d- um, data from Twitter feeds that we will be analyzing over the course of the year to be able mm-hmm. to situate some of the personal experiences um, within this larger uh, social um, climate. And, and, and so, context, yeah. So, what do you hope? What do you hope will, um, when you have this work, how would you envision disseminating it? What do you hope people will get out of these results? And I'm also, um, if we can tie this back in, thinking about um, this reminds me a lot of what happened with Muslim Americans or even people who other people thought were Muslim after 9/11 and this mm-hmm. sort of life-changing experience and people trying to cope in these ways. What are what is something that we can learn from the data that you're collecting now? Yeah, I think you brought up two really, um, at least two, um, <laughs> you know, really important points in there. Um, <laughs> um, I don't I think you have to try very it. hard, but yeah. <laughs> so, but I'll speak about the, the the second one of the points is obviously you know we only um, were, were funded to focus on Chinese Americans, and even then, um, because it's through a rapid mechanism. Um, we are really working on a very small budget and like, um, but, uh, you know, absolutely. We're seeing this spillover effect to other um, Asian American groups and even anyone who looks like they might be right. Like grouped. Mm -hmm. And again, and that's how we know one of the many reasons why we know that it is absolutely based on xenophobia. Right. So there's no truth to it. There's that, you know, like um, you don't even have to have any connections. Right. If I think that you might, I'm just going to right treat you in a certain way. Um, so we would love to be able to, uh, and we think that a lot of this information and these processes are, are going to be generalizable, you know, to the experiences of, um, you know, other Asian um, American, you know, families going through uh, being, you know, targeted and the recipient of, of these sentiments right now. And um, so in terms of, and then that the Muslim American similarity, I also have a project that focuses on Muslim American adolescents. And so we didn't do this after 9-11, which was obviously the, the big, you know, search, mm-hmm. but 
you know, more recently, uh, we started collecting that data uh, when uh, President Trump was actually running for office. And so um, yeah, that was also a very stressful time for mm-hmm. Muslim Americans and then, of course, his you know, travel bans. Um, and so a lot of that work informed how we started doing this work to focus specifically on discrimination in Chinese Americans as well. Um, so that was really interesting. Again, as I said, you know, how we're all tied, right? All, you know, marginalized groups um, are tied together in similar processes that are just targeted at a particular geographical, you know, ethnic, racial, um, social category at a particular point in time. Um, and in terms of, sorry, going back to dissemination, we're hoping to be able to do this more quickly than we usually do, right? So besides, obviously, mm-hmm. scientific, you know, so um, peer-reviewed articles that we're hoping to get out just to inform theories um, and that our, you know, collaborators and also, you know, other scientists in the field can take and inform their work, Um we are also going to be creating uh, more educational, you know, community-based materials that can be disseminated more quickly to um, health educators, schools. So um, one of my uh, collaborators is a school psychologist and, you know, um, will be actively helping and working with this data in order to um, try to, you know, transform and and translate this data very quickly to school settings. so that that can be used in that field, um, and and again, like um, you know, we're reaching out to and uh, different organizations that have pathways towards you know and connections with policymakers to be able to disseminate mm-hmm. information that way as well. And so I think that you know we've seen this you know with a previous you know pandemics where um, we see this rise. We know that these things happen, but we haven't done a very good job documenting against sort of the psychological um, and social impact. Yeah, and I think this is a really important moment where we can take a segue and talk about something else that's also very important and close to my heart, and that is the large and alarming number of African Americans that are dying from COVID-19. And uh, yeah, but I mean, again, like just from because of, of you know sort of of the need. And so my my husband is actually a neuroradiologist, but he does um, he looks at cardiovascular disease and risk, you know, for stroke, and mm-hmm. he works with this large you know um, community based data set called the Eric data set, where they um, and they have a lot of older adults, and then also um, mm-hmm. uh, a large sort of um, um, sample of black participants and yeah. um, and a lot of them are in Jackson, Mississippi. That's one of their main sites. And yes, just, uh, oh, yeah. right. And so, you know, some people on this team were wanting to put in, you know, wanting to look at social, you know, the effects of social isolation on these, like, um, that the participants are quite, uh, quite elderly. Um, and, you know, like, I, I told them like you need to put in something that's going to account for the, the health disparities, you know, in this case, and you know, even having the, the privilege of being able to practice social distancing and the mm-hmm. disproportionate impact that all of this, all of this is having on, um, you know, poor residents, but you know, poor black residents in particular, and and so. You know, we're going to put in um, with, you know, so he connected me with some of his um, other collaborators, um, the PIs on this project. And so, you know, it's added on this like additional component. But again, like I just feel that they need to take this seriously. And again, like, you know, 
maybe it's not my job, but, you know, if I don't do it, someone, you know, yeah. it may not get attended to. And, you know, there's all this discourse now on um, in the news and op-eds about this issue. And they have really the opportunity to be able to, to look at it in a way that um, others may not. And it would be, yeah, a sort of a, a social justice crime if they didn't take up exactly. the mantle to do this. And like, because today on the, I listened to the BBC World News podcast every morning and they were covering some of those disparities, but it was really interesting how they really tried to avoid saying that African-Americans are dying at a higher rate, but trying to also not make it about race at the same time and mm -hmm. also trying not to talk right. about the structural aspects. And so it was a very weird interview to hear because they were really trying to dodge avoiding talking about it, possibly because they're really worried about their audience. But because of that, it just came out so stilted and bizarre. It, yeah. Right. And also part of the issue is that there is very actual, the data that's being collected on COVID-19 right now with regard to the infection rates, um, hospitalization rates, and even death rates, most data sets aren't collecting race um, information. And mm. it's, you know, so now there are few, there, there's actually uh, some initiatives to push for this to happen because unless you document it, um, you can't you know, at least like some people are reluctant to do something about it and people don't want to document it because they don't want to. Um, there, there are two parts of it that are two different aspects of the argument that I've heard about why, um, why there's reluctance to document. One is obviously, you know, to show in a very clear way, again, once again, <laughs> right, that none of this is new, that, you know, we are, that, you know, these health disparities are, institutional right like they're instituted mm -hmm. in the ways every aspect of our society in every layer and this just reveals it again in a very raw raw way and uh, some people are concerned other people i've heard um which is this is also a, i think a more interesting aspect of the argument um, against documenting or at least you know being concerned about documenting um, racial disparities with regard to COVID 19 is that people are fearful that once you document that um, a certain population, um, a segment of our population is being disproportionately affected, that people will stop in some ways caring. Mm. You know, yeah. if that segment of the population is undervalued to begin with. And we saw that with the older population first, younger right. people saying like, oh, you're just going to lose the 70 year olds. That's the people in nursing homes. That's fine. I just won't go near any nursing homes. And then yeah right and here we are i know so you're right it's so bizarre and it's it, because it's also so complex right so that you have considerations on both side of things you know both on, on both sides of um the camp right people who who do care about racial disparities have to also be concerned um <laughs> because mm -hmm. you know the general public you know if, if people don't care about racial disparities might actually start to discount the issue even more. Yeah, not to mention that, um, you know, one, one consideration I had was I wanted, I wasn't sure that people were really going to understand why the differences were happening, as in this is not just genetically that Black people are maybe inferior, right? So there are these other ideas of um, superiority of Absolutely. different races. And my concern was that people would, not understand that some that these were structural issues not this was not a biological difference 
in black people versus others, but or about a structural access to healthcare, pre-existing conditions, lack of sleep, mm-hmm. and how all of these factors um, where you work contribute to um, potential viral exposure, repeated exposure, contribute to just whether you're getting healthcare, whether you're getting acknowledged as having a um, actually, you know, devastating health condition, right? Are you being turned away? Right. Um, risk of diabetes and, and all these other respiratory associations that we know um, make people more susceptible. But then these are also populations where they were already susceptible because of even housing inequality, mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. environmental racism. Mm-hmm. And that was my fear. Absolutely. I agree with you. You know, th- this it's so important to put it within this broader context. And I, I agree with you that there is a danger, you know, there as well, where, you know, and any of this data can be used, right, to sort of perpetuate and to support, um, as you said, sort of um, inferiority in a race, even behaviorally, oh, you know, they're um, more infected, getting more infected because they, they're not abiding by, you know, so the mm-hmm. social distancing recommendations when it's like, as you said, it's housing, it's, you know, needing to, to um, continue to have income. And so you're, you know, continuing to so it yeah it's it's so complex and I, I hope that so on the on the one hand we absolutely need to document this this is really important and then the, the second aspect is making sure that when we are disseminating this inter- information that we are doing it in a, a responsible way that was the end of the first part of our interview with dr carissa chia we thank her so much for all of her wisdom Tune in next time while we all talk about what it's like working from home, managing our family life and our personal relationships, whether they're with other people or by ourselves or monogamous friending. Thank you so much for listening to Page to this podcast. Special thanks to our Patreon subscribers for literally holding us down during this very tough time. And to everyone, stay safe and sane and tune in next time.